Matthew 12, we're going to be verses 1 through 14. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it in page 816, I believe. And so if you would, just really quickly, one more time, would you pray with me? O Lord, our God, who is high and exalted, who sits on your holy throne, we ask you now to be merciful to us and draw near to us. O Lord God, we ask that you remove the veil from our eyes, that we may behold the wonders of your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, it begins like this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. So I realized this week that today officially marks uh, two years since I left Texas and moved up here to the D.C. area and, by God's grace, found my way into this church. <laughs> On my first Sunday here after the service, my friends over here, they took me to, of all places, Mission Barbecue. So yes, after leaving the promised land of Texas, the land flowing with, with brisket and with pork ribs, my first meal here in Virginia was Mission Barbecue. So, so nothing wrong with Mission Barbecue. It's just I've had barbecue in Texas many times. That's all I'm saying. And so when I moved out here for the first few weeks was the hardest, you know, being 1,500 miles away from all my family and friends that I loved. And as the months went on, though it became easier, I learned a, a very important lesson, and unless I know many of you have learned as well, um, being in the very transient area that we live in, and I know we have a lot of military families here as well. And this is the lesson I learned, and I know that you have learned as well. Nearness enhances fellowship. 
So we can be truly thankful for the technology that we have to stay connected with friends and try to maintain those contacts. But, but talking to my parents on the phone every week is not the same as when I travel back and I feel their embrace and fellowship with them in person because nearness enhances fellowship. Actually, let me clarify. I try to call my parents every week. It doesn't always happen. They're going to listen to this, so I need to be clear about that. <laughs> so at the danger of oversimplification, it is possible we could define the Christian life in one word, fellowship. We are in Christ. We have fellowship with God and man. And we're united to Christ and also united to those who are also united to Christ. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as we have read, we are being addressed in the passage in Matthew 12. And at its heart is one of the most profound titles Jesus gives himself. So in looking at this passage, here is the main point. The main point of the passage and its summary is what you find there in verse 8. That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I know I've been meditating on this passage all week and examining it just to tell you that the main point is what most of you will find at the header of the passage in your Bibles. So you're welcome for that. But it's knowing what this title means that will guide us into walking the true Christian life. And so this is the main point this morning. True knowledge of the Christian life begins with true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. True knowledge of the Christian life begins with true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer this morning is that all of us here, the glory of Christ as the Lord of the Sabbath would capture us in such a way that it guides us into walking that true Christian life. We said it can be summed up in one word, in fellowship, and so looking at the Lord of the Sabbath will teach us this. So we're going to break up this story into two parts that will guide us. First, verses 1 through 8, we have the divine declaration. And then second, in verses 9 through 14, we have the divine demonstration. So divine declaration and then divine demonstration. And then at conclusion, we're going to look at really the two main characters of this passage, Jesus and the Pharisees, and draw implications from those. So first, in scene 1, we have the divine declaration. Uh, so in verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields, on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So we began outside on the grain fields on the Sabbath, the holy day, and Jesus and his disciples are walking, and since they are hungry, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And that is when we're introduced to the Pharisees, and it's in this time they catch the disciples, in their mind, they see as breaking the Sabbath and so they lay out this accusation that you can find, and you see there in verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So now in this time, let me just take a brief moment to explain the Sabbath and the life of the nation of Israel and how it leads to this accusation. So in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, is given to Israel by God in the Ten Commandments. So the commandment starts off with the word, Remember, because the Sabbath first primarily functioned for Israel as a symbol of remembrance of a greater sign. So in Exodus 20.11, the ground for keeping the Sabbath is in the pattern of creation established by God himself. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and 
and rested on the seventh day. This is referring to Genesis 2, when we're first introduced to the Sabbath after God completed the six days of creation and declared it good. He rested on the seventh. Not only is it a symbol of remembrance for creation, but also for redemption. Because in the parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5.15, when the Ten Commandments are read once again by Moses, there's a different ground given for keeping the Sabbath. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So you see, the Sabbath, before it was ever a command to abide by, was a sign of the goodness of God, his goodness in creation and his goodness in redemption. And so in Exodus 31, 13, God made the Sabbath keeping as the covenant sign with Israel, a nation of slaves finally resting was their testament to the world that they were God's people. Because, brothers and sisters, what the rest does, it produces a restful heart. And a restful heart is a trusting heart. And a trusting heart is a worshiping heart. And that is what the Sabbath was about. It was about worship. It was about being the fellowship of God's people and the fellowship of God, enjoying his presence because he had come to dwell with them. And so that is what made breaking the Sabbath a great violation that received the death penalty because it marred the character of God. And so that's why as you read the Old Testament, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all other Old Testament books, the sin highlighted more than any other that led Israel and Judah to the punishment of captivity was that they violated the Sabbath. So then in the post-exilic era, from the return of captivity, in between that time and to the time of Jesus, what arose in Israel was rabbis and Pharisees who were zealous for the people of God to return to God in holiness to prepare the way for the Messiah. They created all these extra-biblical laws regulating how to abide by the Sabbath. So then in our passage here this morning, the law that the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of, the, the harvesting and threshing, was a violation of one of these laws that they had established to make sure the people did not violate the Sabbath. So then in verses 3 through 6, Jesus provides a defense for his disciples, and he gives two examples from Scripture. He begins in verse 3 by saying, Have you not read? And of course, putting the Pharisees in their place, because of course they had read. That's all they did was read the Scriptures. And so in verse 3 and 4, he said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. So he, what Jesus here is first referencing is an account you can find in 1 Samuel 21 of David going into the house of God, the time was the tabernacle, and eating the consecrated bread that was restricted by God's law for only the priest to eat. And so then we go into next a verse that's only in, in Matthew's account and not in the parallel passage of Mark and Luke, uh, an example of the temple. And so then verse 5 and 6, Or have you not read the law, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater then the temple is here. 
So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make with these analogies? What is David eating the bread of presence and the priests administering the temple on the Sabbath have to do with the, the disciples plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath? The point then is made clear from the quotation in verse 7 that we have from Hosea 6.6. 6. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So sacrifice or ritual is very important, but mercy is more important. And so when there is this apparent contradiction between the two, mercy wins out because true worship is from the heart, not from the externals. And so then the, the argument that Jesus is providing here is, is a lesser to greater argument. So if mercy was shown to David, who was at this time the anointed king, but had not yet ascended to the throne, but with a small band of men following him who were hungry and needed food, and they were being pursued by jealous enemies who were trying to prevent David from ascending to his throne, if mercy was shown to David, what if someone greater than David was here? And the priests, their work was permitted for being in the temple where the presence of God dwelt, that trumped any Sabbath regulations. And if the priests were not condemned, what if something or someone greater than the temple was here? And so then we have, in verse 8, Jesus' divine declaration, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So if anyone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, that is clearly wrong. For here in this divine declaration, we have one of the clearest statements Jesus makes of being God. For God himself gave the Sabbath pattern in creation, and God himself gave the Sabbath command to Israel. So only God can be Lord of the Sabbath. And being Lord, Jesus established his authority, his authority to regulate the Sabbath for his people about what is and what is not lawful. So all his arguments rest on his authority that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so then we move on here for the second scene. In scene two, once again, it takes place on the Sabbath day, but this time, this time the location is in a synagogue, in the house of worship. So Jesus declaring that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, so now this healing that is about to happen is a demonstration of that lordship. So we are introduced to one more character here, a man with a withered hand, and we're not told anything about him. But the Pharisees, as they use the disciples to attack Jesus, now they use this man in his pitiful state as a tool to attack Jesus. And so they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And so this time, instead of going back to Scripture, Jesus rather gives an obvious analogy so he can put the mirror closer to their faces. So then in verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And the assumption is, of course, without hesitation, anyone is going to save a sheep on the Sabbath. No one is going to leave it there to die. So if you will do this for a sheep, how much greater is man than sheep? So you see the mirrors coming closer to their faces here. And so then at the end of verse 12, the key phrase that ties the demonstration and the declaration together, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
the highest display of his lordship is his goodness. He has mercy on the man with a withered hand. And so in verse 13, he commands him, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. So Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he brings healing and restoration to his people because that is what the Sabbath is about. It's about him. But then in verse 14, where the passage ends, and ends on a dark note, the Pharisees went out, conspired against him, how to destroy him. So their hardened, jealous hearts blinded their eyes from seeing the glory that was right before them. So in this time now, we're going to look at the two main characters of the story, the Pharisees and Jesus, and draw out implications from them. The first one we're going to look at is the Pharisees. And if we were to sum up in one word the actions and the attitude of the Pharisees here, it would be this word, legalism. Now, that's a word that's thrown out much in, in Christian, even religious circles. But what does that mean? So I'm going to put one quote before you now uh, from a theologian, 20th century theologian, uh, Gerhardus Foss, has helped me kind of think about uh, legalism. And this is the quote. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. So let me read that one more time. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. So in other words, legalism is you divorce the law of God from the person of God. And so when that happens, abiding by the law becomes not an act of fellowship with God, but an act of working to God becomes transactional. And so that is what makes the law burdensome. So for the Pharisees here, their misunderstanding of the law, specifically of the Sabbath, was rooted in their misunderstanding of the Lord of the Sabbath. They had missed that the Sabbath revealed the goodness of God in creation and in redemption. And he gave it to them as a blessing, not as a burden. God is good, but when he is separated from his law, his goodness is separated from the law. And when his goodness is separated from the law, the law loses its goodness. It loses that which makes it a delight. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Let me think about this more. How are we like the Pharisees and have not seen the law of God as a delight, but rather as a burden? So here's the mindset when we, like the Pharisees, divorce the law of God from the person of God. We believe that the basis of our relationship with God is what we do for God. Now, I don't believe anyone or many here would openly say that we believe that, that the basis of our relationship with God is what we do for him. We see that the slippery nature of legalism is that it can flow through our bloodstream even without us knowing it or professing it. It's the fruits of legalism that make it discernible. So we can see a number of fruits here. From our text, there is one particular fruit of legalism. You lack mercy. 
you lack mercy towards others. See, the Pharisees, they had based their whole system, the Sabbath regulations, on, on a true conviction that it was the nation of Israel's sin of not keeping the Sabbath that had exiled them, that had banished them away from, from the presence of God. And he had exiled them away from the Holy Land. And even when they had returned uh, to the land, the kingdom of Messiah had not yet come. So they formed all these regulations and as a means of bringing God to them. And no one obeyed them more than the Pharisees. So then who were the most burdened of the people in Israel? It was the Pharisees. Because they rigorously obeyed the law that they had divorced from the mercy of God. For them, sacrifice trumped mercy. And so as the spiritual leaders go, so go the people. The burdened leading the people into burdens. So brothers and sisters, ask yourself, would people here in church, would your spouse, would your family, would your friends, would they describe you as merciful? And specifically, if you are a, a spiritual leader, whether an elder, a deacon, parents, teachers, anyone here who has influence and respect over others in a spiritual manner, is your spiritual leadership characterized with mercy? Or are you placing unnecessary burdens on them? Because in the house of God, we are called to have hearts of mercy towards one another. This does not mean we turn a blind eye to sin. But is there any ounce of legalism in our hearts that is placing burdens on others where Scripture does not? And even thinking deeper, is, it, is there a judgmental spirit in you that would spill over into becoming this? If there are thoughts like this, like you, you see your brothers and sisters at church, thoughts like, you know, they really should attend the prayer meetings more. Or why do they send their kids to that kind of school? Those kind of thoughts that perhaps, you know, true thoughts that could lead to a fruitful conversation. But you have to ask yourself with those thoughts, is your judgment of them rooted in your love for your brother and sister, that you want to see them flourish? Or is it rooted in your effort of self-justification before God, that you can boast in your faithfulness where others have failed? Because that is divorcing the law of God from the good character of God. And what we become like, we become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, who thought of his father not as a father, but as a taskmaster, and thought the basis of their relationship was how faithful his service was to his father. And so what did he lack? He lacked mercy. So brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves and guard ourselves daily where are we in our thoughts, actions, desire, divorcing the law of God from the good character of God and examine our hearts daily in this? Now, now some of you this morning, perhaps you may not be struggling with, with showing mercy, but there's another fruit of, of legalism. So if you look at how the passage ends in verse 14, that the Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus, well, then what's the next phrase? Jesus, aware of this, withdrew. Because legalism breeds distance. While those in Christ, you cannot lose your union with Christ. You can lose that communion, that nearness you can feel to him. 
So let me ask, what were the first words spoken by God to man? In Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So the first words God ever spoke to man were in the form of a command. They were law. And this command was a blessing. So God's purpose of law and his purpose of giving this command was to enrich fellowship. His purpose was to make life a delight. In your presence there is fullness of joy, the psalmist says. And what legalism does is it uses the law for what is not. The law of God will always be a burden when it serves as our means to bring God's favor to us. So some of you this morning, you may be in a, in a state of spiritual dryness or of dullness. After years of faithful obedience, your faith has now turned dry and you lack that feeling of nearness to God. Beloved, could it be that in your observance of the law, you took your eyes off of God and fixed them on yourself? It made your faith about yourself, about what he must do to bring God's favor to you. And so the goodness of God, it seemed distant from you. Not something you experienced, but something you only heard about on Sundays. So your faith became burdensome, and your weariness extinguished your spiritual flourishing. So brothers and sisters, if this is you, if you're weary and you feel far from God this morning, or if you're burdened by sin, I want you now to hear these words from the Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 11, verses 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, for the context of our passage this morning, it comes right after Jesus has just mourned the unbelief of the Jews. And it's because they were led astray by the legal burdens of the Pharisees. They were the wise and the understanding whom God had not revealed the mysteries of heaven to. And so to a weary people, Jesus declares that he is the one, the only one who can give the people true rest. And our passage is really just the grounds for that declaration. For how can we trust that Jesus will give true rest? Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so at the beginning, what we said, true knowledge of the Christian life begins with true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And here's what that means. It means that Jesus is declaring that he is the exalted Lord who draws near. Okay, so exalted Lord, it makes sense. Lord of the Sabbath, but drawing near. What is that? Why does that matter? So as many of you know, from the first sin of Adam and Eve, before they had fellowship with God, but then were banished for their sin, the question in Scripture becomes, how can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God and once again enjoy that fellowship? 
And so God worked. Through Abraham and then through Moses, God formed a nation, Israel, whose mark was the Sabbath, but their identity was the people whom God dwelled among. For the Sabbath was not just a remembrance, but also their present resting would point to, forward to the final rest, an eternal rest when God would restore all things from the corruption of sin. And so the final rest would be when the people of God would be in the land of God and the presence of God would be among them. The people of God in the land of God and the presence of God would be among them and that would be the final rest. And so he commands them to build a tabernacle, later a temple, so he could dwell among them. And it was in the temple that the sacrifices were performed. Because for God truly to dwell with men, blood must be spilled to pay the penalty of sin. But as you know, Israel rebelled. They did not keep the law of God nor abide by the Sabbath. So then once again, just when it looked like God's plans were coming to fruition, David's son was on the throne and God dwelled among the people in the temple. They were banished from the land far from God. And even when God was merciful and returned them to the land, the glory of the former temple was gone and the people were still far from God in their sin. And so what they needed was a savior. They needed a true sacrifice to pay for the penalty of sin. They needed God to dwell with men. And so I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you look at the opening chapter of Matthew, Matthew gives us the answer to this longing of the people of God. There are two names given for the Messiah that you could summarize really the whole book of Matthew from. So in Matthew 1, Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the Lord of the Sabbath is the true son of David, the true sacrificial lamb, and the true meeting place between God and man. So why, why know this? Why must we know that the exalted Lord is the one who draws near? So if we see a man who humbles himself to another man, we say that it's good. If a king were to humble himself to come to a man, that is a greater good. What if the king of kings humbles himself to come to man? We say that good is glory. For when Emmanuel came and was born of the virgin and the glory of God shined forth across the sky and the choir of angels proclaimed glory to God on the highest and on earth peace among whom his goodness rests upon because his nearness is our good. And so I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? The Lord of the Sabbath did good for he restored not just withered hands, but he restored all things. And how did he do this good? So Jesus, who is both God and man, came in his earthly life and perfectly obeyed every law of God. While we stand guilty before the law outside of Christ, he was guiltless. And in the hands of the Pharisees, the guiltless was condemned. 
But this was according to the eternal plan of God to bring man to God. Instead of a throne, the exalted Lord Jesus was given a cross. And on the cross, Jesus became the perfect sacrifice and endured the full wrath of God so that sin could be punished completely. And when he breathed his final breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Because now through Jesus Christ, man can be restored into fellowship with God. And so my friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, this is what this means for you. As Christians, we do not believe we can work our way to God's favor. Our only hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. So the response first to this message is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means you turn away from your sins and to Jesus and obey his word. But you also respond in faith that you believe that Jesus is the savior of your life and you cannot save yourself. And you believe in his life, that he lived the perfect life of obedience so that his obedience now becomes your obedience. And you stand guiltless before the law on those grounds alone. And you believe in his death, that your sin was placed on him on the cross and that has been fully paid for. And you believe in his resurrection, that as he bodily rose from the dead, so will you on the final day, so that you live with the hope now that you will enter the rest of God and enjoy fellowship with God forever. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Titus 3, 4. And so, brothers and sisters, what does this knowledge of the Lord of the Sabbath as the exalted Lord who draws near mean for you? It means that your whole life is in him and through him and for him. The Christian life is enjoying fellowship with him. It guards you from that legalism because you know Christ. And if you know Christ, you know the Father. He is good and has shown it to you and drawing near to you in Christ. So you must no longer obey to bring God to you, but now you are free to obey. 1 John 5.3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And that is the Christian life. We experience fellowship through faithful obedience because the one who is commanding is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so all that he commands is to lead us to rest, to final rest. And what about prayer? Prayer is no longer a burden we must do. For Jesus as Emmanuel is God's confirmation to you that he hears your prayers and that he wants to have fellowship with you. And through your praising and pleading on your knees, you are experiencing that fellowship. And in your daily reading of the word, you're reading the words of the exalted Lord who draws near. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, Psalm 19. Joy in the word only comes because the word incarnate has come near to you. And what about our corporate life together? Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
So brothers and sisters, what are we doing here on the Lord's Day is no insignificant matter. We gather as one body to be addressed by the word from our king, to be shaped by it, to grow as one body in holiness. And our gathering now is a foretaste of what is to come, when all of God's people will be in one assembly, praising our Lord and enjoying him forever. And what about our mission as the church, our evangelism? Well, the nearness of our Lord and his authority is our confidence. For the bookend of Matthew, as you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in short, Christ is our all in all. So kids, where, where are the kids in here? Thank you, I got some hands back there. For most of you, what, what's happening this week? What's starting this week? You guys don't sound excited at all. <laughs> don't worry, I'm with you, I'm starting school as well. When school starts, that means summer is over. That means rest, that means freedom, sleep it in, that's all over. But kids, I want you to hear this now. When you believe in Jesus and you give your life to him, you know what else happens? School is no longer a burden. And how is this? Because when you believe in Jesus, you become a child of God. And it's only God's children that get the special privilege of bringing our Heavenly Father delight in our work. So even the smallest task you do, when you do all of your homework, you try hard on that test, or even wake up early to get to school on time. I know it's hard. Even those small things, that fills God with the greatest joy. And there's no greater treasure than having the joy of your heavenly Father. So when you think about this and you go about your days, having that joyful attitude in your work is a great testament to your friends at school. And so this morning, to, to those who are weary and, and burdened with sin, who need fresh mercies this morning, and even to our older saints here, who with the, the earthly body failing, you feel low in spirit. So this promise is for you, from the exalted Lord who draws near. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell on the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the Lord of the Sabbath. So brothers and sisters, Knowing the Lord of the Sabbath means that we know what we are created for. Fellowship with God, to be near him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever. So this is our hope in the end in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. This is the final rest that the Lord of the Sabbath is bringing to us. So this morning, rest in him, so that on the final day, you may hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, fill us with thoughts of your goodness, Lord God. We thank you for how you have revealed your goodness to us and drawing near to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord who humbled himself and was obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. I pray now for all of us, Lord God, that you would uh, equip our minds with this understanding so that, Lord God, as we go about our days, our work, and our labor, labor, we know we have the hope of final rest in you, the rest that awaits us, where we can enjoy the nearness of you and the eternal fellowship that we will have in your kingdom. We ask on this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.